the 18th chapter of the Gospel of Luke, verses 9 through 14. These are God's words. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves, but they were righteous, that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to pray, into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners and unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. May the Lord add a blessing to the readers here as doers of his holy and infallible word. You may be seated. The incredible scholar and thinker um, and author by the name of C.S. Lewis once said that all the worst pleasures are purely spiritual. The pleasure of putting other people in the wrong, the pleasure of bossing, and the pleasure of uh, patronizing and spoiling um, sport. Spoiling sport means ruining fun. So the, the pleasure of ruining people's fun, the pleasure of backbiting, gossiping, the pleasures of power, the pleasures of hatred. C.S. Lewis says, all of these are the worst pleasures. He calls them spiritual in kind. But then he concludes with this. He says, that is why a cold, self-righteous prig who goes regularly to church may be far nearer to hell than a prostitute. And then he says, but of course, it's better to be neither. The point that Lewis is making is that there are fewer things more dangerous than the temptations that arise when we think that we are spiritually better than other people. In last week's parable about a man who built more barns to store goods rather than being rich towards God by sharing his excess goods with others, we work through this idea that greed not only has an impact on how we relate back to God, but it also diminishes our connection to the people around us because an increasing love of money leaves less and less room to actually love people. Greed is a roadblock to healthy relationship with God and healthy relationships to others or with others. But in this week's parable, we will highlight another roadblock to healthy relationship with God and healthy relationships with others, and that is the roadblock of self-righteousness. The danger of seeing yourself as spiritually more deserving and spiritually more elite and spiritually more important based on what you do and what you know or what you consider to be in you and resident within you. This is a danger that's not just or, or, or that's just as deadly, rather, as any other sin that you can name, which is why it is important that Jesus confront. Uh, 20 and 22, then you would uncover the likely audience that Jesus is telling this parable to. 
In verses 20 and 22 of chapter 17, you see that Jesus actually has in this audience followers and detractors. People that are increasingly coming to realize that he holds the words of life and people who don't believe they need his words or him. However, for this parable, it appears that Jesus has turned his attention primarily the things they did and the things they knew made them righteous enough to be accepted by God. That is to say that they gave and they served and they prayed and they fasted and they sung and they taught and they refrained from evil deeds. And because they did all of these things, they trusted in themselves for the necessary righteousness to be accepted by God. That's the first quality of this group. But then Luke gives us a a pairing quality that's extremely important for our meditation and reflection on this morning, and it is this. They treated others with contempt. There are a few ways to see this very important word, contempt. For example, the Christian Standard Bible says or reads that they looked upon or they looked down upon everyone else. You could say that they treated everyone else as if they were ultimately nothing, that they were ultimately insignificant. And these are the two qualities that Jesus pairs together in this story because these two qualities are paired together in life more often than not. When you find one, you are extremely likely to find the other. Have you ever wondered why so many people who are considered to be representing the church of the Lord Jesus Christ in the West come off to the rest of the world?
And these reasons, unfortunately, have merit. For example, one of the bigger reasons for the disdain that the world has towards the church is because those who are seen in the church too often treat others both in it and outside of it with contempt. They treat others with the sort of disdain that says, you are not worthy of my time, my love, my attention, or my affection. I'm too important or too good, or you're not important or good enough for my love, my attention, my affection, and my time. Now, this may never be audibly spoken. I mean, who does that, right? Nobody audibly speaks this, but it is felt. It is felt between the parties. The one who believes they're too good and the one who senses that this person believes that they're too good. It becomes palpable. You can, you can almost taste it even if no one's saying it out loud. And it shows up in the distance that we create between ourselves and, quote, unquote, those people. It shows up in our unwillingness to share time and space and presence with those people. It may never be said out loud, but it is deeply felt. And what lies at the heart of this contempt, one might ask? Very often what lies at the heart of this contempt is this misplaced confidence in our own righteousness. Self-righteousness and contempt our paired qualities. Maybe it's our credentials. Maybe it's our education that whispers to our hearts that we are enough in and of ourselves. Maybe it's our finances that whispers to our hearts that we are enough in and, our, in and of ourselves. Maybe it's our beauty that whispers to our hearts that we are enough. Maybe it's our pedigree or our ancestry that whispers to us that we are enough. Maybe it's our children who are better behaved because we raised them right. Maybe it's our knowledge of Scripture that whispers to our hearts that we are enough. Maybe it's our ability to uphold a standard of obedience. In other words, we say all the right things or we do all the right things. And because of that, we say that we ourselves, in and of ourselves, are enough. All of these have the ability to increase in us a confidence in our righteousness and to decrease in us a regard for others. Self-righteousness and contempt are very often two sides of the same coin. That's the point. So with this in mind, let's turn to our parable. The first thing you see in this parable, as we think about self-righteousness and contempt being two sides of the same coin, is that there are contrasting identities and contrasting prayers. There are contrasting identities and contrasting prayers. There's two men with very completely different lives, and there's two men who pray completely different prayers. Does that make sense? And so in verse 10, we hear Jesus tell this story by saying two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. These two men couldn't stand farther apart on the spectrum of prestige and respect and acceptance in their culture. But they also couldn't stand farther apart on the prayers that they offer God and the prayers that they pray. First, let's look at the Pharisee. 
regarding the Pharisee, it is important to remember that the way the modern Christian now views the Pharisee of Jesus' day is not necessarily the way the society, that society in his day would have viewed him. This original crowd that Jesus was telling this story to would have heard about the Pharisee character and quite possibly expected him to be casted in a more favorable light in this story, especially since it is most likely a large number of Pharisees in this group that is hearing the story as Jesus is telling it. This audience would have been somewhat taken back by the fact that the Pharisee was not actually the good guy in this story because their thoughts of the Pharisees wouldn't have been quite as negative as, our, as, as we are today. Jewish historian Josephus said that the Pharisees were a certain sect of the Jews that appear more religious than others and seem to interpret the laws more accurately. In other words, they were known as a people who followed God's laws and received acceptance through their obedience from God. That's how they thought about themselves. But unfortunately, it, it appears that this reputation that precedes this Pharisee is what's being used to shape his prayers to God. And so the Pharisee prays. And there doesn't necessarily appear to be a whole lot that is unexpected in how he prays. You look at verse 11, he says, the Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. First thing we notice is that the Pharisee is, is standing as he prays, and that's a very normal posture in ancient Judaism. Even offering thanks to God for the piety that resides in you is not necessarily an unusual thing. For example, in Psalm 26, we hear David say similar things. He says, I vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity. I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Prove me, O Lord, and try me and test my heart and my mind, for your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers. I will not sit with the wicked. I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, O Lord. Proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling all your wondrous deeds and so forth and so on. And so David prays a prayer almost similar in some ways to what we're hearing out of this Pharisee. But all is not right with this prayer that the Pharisee prays. Something going on. You see, the Pharisee appears to be praying to God. However, unlike David... He is ultimately just using God to run victory laps for himself. David's prayer is filled in Psalm 26 with calls back to the Lord. It is clear that his prayer is rooted in what the Lord has done and is doing on his behalf. He keeps going back to the Lord as he offers this prayer. The Pharisee prays a prayer where he mentions the Lord once and then he spills off into his victory laps. I thank God that I'm not like that guy, and I'm not like that lady, and I'm not like that person, and I'm not like that person. I'm not even like that guy that's over there, the tax collector. I thank God that I'm not like any of those people. I thank God that I'm so good with my charity that I give tithes above and beyond what anybody else gives. I thank God that I'm so good with my discipline that I fast more than anybody else does. 
You see, the Pharisee is far more excited to talk about his righteousness that exceeds the normal righteousness of others. He says he fasts twice weekly. Judaic custom requires its adherence to fast once a year in observation of the Day of Atonement. The Pharisees took their fasting up a notch by fasting twice a week, once on Monday and once on, on Mondays and Thursdays of every week. And so the praying Pharisee wants to ensure that everyone knows this about him, including God. God, I thank you that I'm fasting twice a week. He also talks about the money that he's giving. He says, I tithe of all that I get. It appears that the, this Pharisee is going above and beyond in his tithing. Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 22 and 23, it gives us a blueprint for Old Testament tithing. It tells us that, that you shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. And before the Lord your God in the place that he will choose to make his name dwell there, you shall eat the tithe of your grain and of your wine and of your oil and the firstborn of your herd and flock, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God. But we know that the rabbis stretched this commandment to include not only the field, but include everything that you had. I mean, vegetables and herbs. But, but, but this Pharisee stretches it even farther from vegetables and herbs to Anything that he has, anything in my possession, I tithe it back. He raises the standard. There's nothing off the table for me when it comes to my tithing. So when it comes to religious piety, the Pharisee from all appearances is elite. He's tithing more than anyone else. He's fasting more than anyone else. He's obedient. And he is more than happy to tell the Lord all about it. If you're listening closely, you'll see some of the self-righteousness peeping out of the curtain from behind the curtain. There really is no mention of where he is not so great, but the Lord has granted mercy in spite of. And there really is no significant mention of how the Lord has made him great at the things he happens to be great in. He says, I thank, I thank you, Lord. I'm, I'm not like these people, and I'm doing so many good things over here. This kind of veiled, kind of posturing and posing reminds me of what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 23, verse 5 and 7. He said, they do all their deeds to be seen by others. They love the place of honor at feast and best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by others. You see any of that in our day? You see any of that in you? You see any of that in, in us? in our culture, in the way we live out our faith. Of course we do. We're in a selfie generation. <laughs> in a selfie generation like ours, you see it everywhere. We can't wait to tell you about everything we've done. We can't wait to tell you about everything we're going to do. And we can't wait to tell you about everything that we are doing. In the name of the Lord, of course. I mean, we, we, can't, we can't wait to humble brag about our wealth or humble brag about our possessions or humble brag about our sharp and keen intellect or humble brag about our knowledge of Scripture. And too often, in so doing, what we are declaring is that we are good enough. We are smart enough. We are obedient enough to be accepted. However, as we said earlier this morning, there's something else besides the self-righteousness that is showing up in this parable that Jesus is telling us. And what is that? Contempt. 
there are subtle hints of contempt bubbling beneath the surface of this Pharisee's prayer. The Pharisee standing by himself, verse 11, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like these other men. I thank you that I'm not an extortioner like these other guys. I thank you that I'm not unjust like these other. I thank you that I'm not an adulterer. I thank you that I'm not even like that guy over there that's in the room praying right now. Tax collector, man, I'm so glad, God, that I'm not like that guy. Notice that verse 11 begins with the Pharisee standing by himself. It is one thing to not be unequally yoked with the unbeliever, right? To need distance from those engaged in bold and arrogant sin and calling you into that sin. But it's something else entirely different that's at work for the Pharisee here. You see, he distanced himself because he sees himself as above them. You understand that? I mean, he, he distanced himself as if he's saying, well, God, did you, did you hear my resume? Why, why would I waste time around them? Why would I waste time around those kind of people? Did you hear my record of exceptional obedience and tithing and and hear all about the fasting that I do every week. I can't be around those kind of people who aren't fasting. What could I possibly gain by being closer to such people? In fact, in observing the prayer of the Pharisee, what you discover is that he is not necessarily thankful to God for his mercy and granting righteousness. He feels he has what he needs regarding righteousness in his own work. So he's thanking God that he is not like all of these other people, including the tax collector who is in the room praying as well, because in his mind, those people are beneath him. You see, when we don't see the mercy and grace of Christ at work in the righteousness that we possess, then we will see ourselves in better lights than we should. And we will see those around us in worse lights than we should. You see, instead of candidates of grace and mercy, we will see ourselves as candidates of God's debt. God, look at all the great things I'm doing for you. You owe me. And instead of candidates of grace and mercy, we will see those around us as candidates of our contempt, our dismissal, and our disregard. It is this, it is this that the world senses when it looks inside of the church. Yes, it is the gospel sometimes that serves as a stench to those who are perishing. And yes, it is the gospel ethics and the gospel commands, the hard calls that God is calling us to, that the world senses. But oftentimes it is this that the world is sensing that repels them. Because when they look inside of the church, sometimes it's not just the pursuit of righteousness in Christ that they see, but it is arrogance on display in our own self-righteousness and the contempt that comes towards them in our own self-righteousness. And you don't have to say it, saints. It's palpable. You can feel it. You can sense it. You can smell it. You can see it. You can taste it. 
But there's another character in this story whose identity and prayers are completely different. His life is different. In verse 13, it says, the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And turning to the tax collector in order to truly feel the weight of Jesus' point, we must realize that under normal circumstances, this guy would have been considered the villain of the story. The tax collector is under no delusions concerning his sin. It is always pointed out in his culture. It's always laid before him. He is despised by most in his own community. He is considered a greedy sellout to his own people because of his work and his connection back to Rome. The Pharisee goes to speak to God while congratulating himself, but the tax collector goes to plead with God for mercy because he knows he has nothing to congratulate himself on. He knows how the world sees him. He knows how his culture sees him. He knows what's in him. He knows what he has done, and none of it is commendable. He is fully aware of his sinfulness before God. And so what does he do? Verse 13, the tax collector standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Notice the posture of the tax collector, standing like the Pharisee. They're both standing, they're both praying. These are, these are normal customs. But the Pharisee, remember, was standing by himself. And Luke and, and Jesus, as he tells the parable, is very deliberate in noting that this not, it's not necessarily about standing by himself here the tax, for the tax collector, but is standing far off. What's the difference? In one, you have someone who is trying to get away from people that he believes is too good, that he's too good for. But the other is trying not to get too close to God and his people because he believes that he is not good enough for them. One believes that he is so holy that no one else can get close to him. The other one realizes that he isn't holy enough, and so he doesn't want to get too close to God. One stands in pride exalting himself. One stands in humility begging for mercy. And to further demonstrate this, not only is he standing apart from everyone else, but he is not lifting his eyes to heaven. The weight of his sin is so heavy that he cannot look towards God. And so he is standing apart from everyone else. He is looking down instead of looking up. And then he is praying with the kind of desperation that is displayed through the beating of his chest, pleading with God. He is desperate for God to hear him. He does not take for granted that God is, in fact, listening to a sinner. He's begging for him to listen. Those fully aware of their sin understand that for God to even listen to their prayers is nothing short of a miraculous measure of grace and mercy. They don't come to God taking that for granted. You know how sometimes we say, man, we have the gospel, and so because we have the gospel and Jesus has done what he's done, then yeah, of course God's going to listen, right? We don't understand that this is still a miracle that he's listening. That, that if, we, if we consider our sinfulness, that if we consider our daily load of sin that we carry up to the throne of grace every single day, it's a miracle that God has his ears open to us. This is not lost on this man. 
which is why he's beating his chest as he is pleading to this merciful God, begging for mercy. You know, the self-righteous, they come to God thinking that it's owed to them that he listened. I mean, think about all that I've done for you. I don't have to do any of that today, God. So I know you're listening. But the self-aware come to God thinking that it is the highest demonstration of love and grace that he chooses to listen. Notice the words of this prayer. He has no accolades to congratulate himself. There's no celebratory announcements. There's no attention on how bad other people are. Man, I'm so glad I'm not like all these other folks over here. Man, I'm so glad I'm not like that other self-righteous, arrogant guy over there that's talking about me. His prayer is simple. His prayer is profound. And it's this, God be merciful to me, a sinner. You see, it doesn't matter how much money he has. It doesn't matter who his family is. It doesn't matter how much he knows or doesn't know. All that matters before this holy God right now is that I am a sinner and I am in need of your mercy. He prays, he prays fully aware of his need. One scholar rightly points out even that the Greek word that he prays as he asks for mercy is used here. Um, but but it, the one that's used here is not the usual Greek that's used all throughout the New Testament for mercy. It's a special word that is associated with the sacred works that are performed on the Day of Atonement. And it's only used one other time. This is what he says about it. He says in the New Testament, the verb is used once, only once again in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, where it refers to Jesus fulfilling the duty of the high priest by atoning for the sins of the people at the Holy of Holies in the temple. So, he continues, in putting a uniquely high priestly prayer of atonement in the mouth of the tax collector in the temple, Jesus suggestively and scandalously cast him in the role of the Jewish high priest. The man with nothing to offer. The man that's despised by all. The man that is shamed disowned basically by his own people, is now taking on a priestly role as he offers his simple, uneducated prayer of mercy to Jesus. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus is saying here that this man with nothing to offer is in much better shape than the man who believes he has everything to offer because he is the only one who is real about his condition. Are you real about your condition before God? Are you honest about your condition before God? Or do you secretly bring your prayers to God with your resume, saying, well, I know he's listening, or I know he has to respond because of all these other things that I've done. Verse 14, he says, Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified. Who? Who went down to his house justified? The Pharisee? No. No. The tax collector. Justified means that he was declared not guilty. Justified means that he was declared right with God. And only one goes home with this designation, and it's not the Pharisee. It's not the Pharisee. It's not the lawkeeper, the well-respected, the highly regarded. He was not justified that day. His favor amongst the public could not save him. His place in the social order of the culture could not save him. His strict adherence to the law could not save him. 
Fam, there are going to be people at the end of this life who are well-established, well-respected, even religious and adherence to the law, who will close their eyes a final time in this life unjustified. God will declare to those people that their guilt remains, not because they did bad things. We've all done bad things, but rather because they rejected the only one who could actually do something about the evil that we've all actively, openly acted on and the evil that still remains in our hearts. Brothers and sisters, there was only one thing that could have saved this Pharisee. There was only one thing that would have allowed that Pharisee to walk out of that temple justified on his way home. And that was for him to acknowledge that he himself could not save himself. We are not self-saviors. It was his job to acknowledge that his best deeds on their best days are nothing more than filthy rags. We are sinners. It was his job to acknowledge that his salvation could only come through trusting God, trusting Jesus Christ as Lord and as Savior. We are not and cannot be self-saviors. We are unquestionably sinners, and we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and the only begotten Son of God, Jesus Christ. The Pharisee did not understand that, and so it was for that reason that he was actually given what he was so quick to offer everyone else. Separation and isolation. <laughs> Remember the separation that he fought so hard to have? Keeping everyone at arm's bay? Too good to be too close? That kind of contempt? What does it earn him? Separation. You see that? When you're standing on your own righteousness, think that you're standing apart from everyone else because of how great you are, in the end, the only thing that does is earn you true separation, true isolation. Except that isolation in the end is not just simply isolation from people, but that isolation in the end is a separation from God himself. On the other hand, there's this tax collector standing distant, standing far off, beating his chest, pleading for mercy to God. He gets it. What do, we, what, do we even, what do we even bring before God but a clear-eyed awareness that we are sinful, a desperate desire for mercy, and a willingness to embrace him as Lord? That's all we can bring. That's all we can bring. This man has nothing to offer other than his awareness that he has nothing to offer. And for God, that is plenty sufficient. What does God need from us? other than a full acknowledgement that we are not able to save ourselves in an honest plea and an honest cry for mercy. Here's the reality. These two men bring these contrasting identities, these contrasting lives with them, and they bring these contrasting prayers with them. But the truth is that they are ultimately the same people. Both are in need of justification. Both are in need of mercy. Both are in need of Christ. Both have nothing to offer. But unfortunately, it is only one who knows that. And here's another shocking piece to this parable. The Pharisee is leaving the temple under the deception that his reliance on his own righteousness will give him access to God. He leaves the temple thinking that that is enough. He leaves the temple looking down on the people that are gathered there that are not like him 
including that tax collector over there. When in fact, what's happening is that it is separating him. His self-righteousness is driving him from God and from others. But here's, here's the tragedy. The lesson that he needs to learn is in the same room with him. But his contempt for that lesson, his contempt is too great for the keeper of that lesson in order for him to see it. The lesson is there, right? The man who is standing and beating his chest and head down and pleading, God, have mercy on me. That's what you need. That's what you need, Pharisee. There it is. And what is he saying? Look at that guy. Glad I'm not like him. You see what contempt does? Contempt robs you from some of the lessons that God is trying to teach you. Contempt robs you from the grace and the mercy that God has, uh, God has given you through the lives of others because you think they're not good enough to teach you anything. There are so many instances in my life that I can think about where there are people around me that I look at their lives and their lives are so messed up, but they're just clinging to Jesus. And I'm saying to myself, well, man, I'm, you know, maybe, I, maybe there's something I can teach them. Maybe there's something I can disciple them in, right? Maybe, maybe there's something I can walk. What, 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 I mean, what can they teach me? What do I have to learn from them? We're both in need of grace. We're both in need of justification. We're both in need of mercy. What are they clinging to that I need to cling to? Self-righteousness, just like greed from last week, is a roadblock to authentic relationship with God and authentic relationship with people. So, Christian, how do you know, as we wrap up, how do you know whether your heart is growing in righteousness that is found in Christ or your heart is growing in the delusional self-righteousness that believes we are saving ourselves? Here's, here's one way as I wrap up. Self-righteousness increases your arrogance and pushes you away from those who you consider to be less righteous. And all the while it does it in the name of God. It leaves you, it leaves you silently and quietly saying to yourself, God, I'm glad I'm not like. God, I thank you that I am not like as you list off your credentials in your resume. However, righteousness that is found in Christ humbles you because it lays us bare and it shows us who we really are outside of Jesus, just sinners facing the holy wrath of God. But because the same righteousness is now ours to claim, it gives us a humble joy that we are no longer trying to keep from others with contempt. But on the contrary, we are freely and joyfully seeking to share with others, no matter their life circumstances, no matter their life condition, and no matter their life position. That's how you know you're growing in righteousness in Christ and rather than self-righteousness. Because righteousness in Christ opens your heart to people no matter, their, no matter their background, no matter their walk, no matter their dirtiness, no matter the things that they bring to the table and the baggage that they bring to the table. Because you recognize that in them you see yourself. A sinner in need of mercy and sinner, a sinner in need of justification. That's how you know you're relying on the righteousness of God. When you keep people at arm's bay like this, that's because there is some self-righteousness in there. Do you understand? But when your heart is more open to people, 
when your heart is more merciful towards people, and when you're operating in this kind of humble joy that is committed to sharing the same love that Christ loves you with, sharing it with others, that's how you know that the righteousness of Christ is real in your life and that you are resting more on it and less on your own. Does that make sense, saints? Are you growing in humble joy? Is your desire to share the life and love of Christ with those around you? If so, it is most likely because your heart is leaning away from self-saving and self-righteousness and leaning towards the righteousness that truly saves. The righteousness that is found in the one who gave his life in order that we might have life. Amen? May the Lord move us from saving ourselves and move us from self-righteousness. And may he move us to the one who has saved us in the righteousness that he provides us. Amen? Let's pray. God, we love you. And we give you all the thanks and praise. And-